Alright, so Second Thessalonians 3 is a bit more easier than uh, chapter 2 was, thankfully. So, uh, verses 1 to 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from, per- from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Okay, so he requests prayers. Uh, That is something Paul will do frequently. He sees the importance of receiving God's help, and so he wants them to pray for him. Specifically that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So Paul wants the gospel to spread. He wants people to receive the gospel and to be transformed by it. Uh, And that shows you, even when he's asking for prayers for himself, he's really asking for prayers for the gospel to be spread. That's what he really wants. That's his biggest goal. Do we ever try to teach others without praying about it? You know, I think you see so much in Paul the need to be praying about the things we're doing in the Lord. And it reminds me of the disciples trying to cast out the demon without prayer. And I think that's been my problem a lot of times, is not accompanying with prayer sufficiently the actions that we're doing. So pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just like it did with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. I am understanding this as he's asking for this protection, not so much because he's scared of the persecution, but because he wants to be able to advance the gospel without a hindrance. In this context, I think that would be the biggest reason he'd want that. Rescued from evil men so he could continue his work in causing the gospel, the word, to spread and be glorified. Why would he need to be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith? I mean, there's the reason for their vicious reaction to the gospel. They don't believe in the Lord. So you wouldn't expect them to receive the gospel kindly. And then, he says, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So now he turns to his concerns for them, kind of forgets his own danger because of his concerns for the flock, and says that the Lord, because he's faithful, will protect them from the evil one. I think the evil one here means Satan. And that, you know, he wants them to be kept from Satan deceiving them, influencing them to fall into sin, tempting them, and so forth. That's the biggest danger we face. Our danger is not so much just people hurting us, but the Satan just turning us away from the Lord. That, that's, that's what we really need to be focused on. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. So Paul believes that he can count on them, count on the Lord really, uh, to continue to work in their lives and to continue to cause them to do what, what they've commanded them. Uh, so it's interesting, even when he talks about their persistence and their faith and their applying it it's confidence in the Lord it's seeing the Lord working in them there's so much of that in the New Testament so much of a concept that it's not just the person on his own but it's the Lord working in the person clearly it's not only the Lord 
because people can frustrate the work of the Lord in their lives. But as we allow the Lord to, he will work in us and he will enable us to do what we command, what, what we've been commanded. And then he requests from God, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. We've had the Lord show up four times in these five verses. <laughs> you know, he's very Lord-centered in what he does. And he wants the Lord to direct their hearts. The Lord is intimately involved with us. He's involved in our hearts, getting our hearts directed into the love of God, into the steadfastness of Christ. There's a debate about what does it mean, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. But I would suggest that probably here it means the love God has and the steadfastness Christ had. That we should show the same love God does and the same steadfastness Jesus does. We ought to act like God. We ought to love like God does. We ought to be like the Lord in our hearts. So may he direct your hearts to love like God loves and to be steadfast like Jesus was steadfast, to imitate the perseverance of Jesus and the love of God. That's what he's praying for them. And again, thoughtful prayers. Brief, but but not just generalities, but, but specific things that he's concerned for them with. Thoughts and comments on those first five verses. I think most of this is directed at, <clears throat> he's talking about the perverse and even before the apostasy and those things directed at religious people or the world outside. You see the, maybe the difference or, or does it matter? Well, it may not matter. I mean, they have opponents, probably both Jewish and Roman, you know, so, Whatever their enemies, whoever they were, you know, he's asking God to protect them from that. There's a lot of emphasis on the persecution of Thessalonica. Evidently, there was quite a bit of that. Yeah, even throughout the whole New Testament, a lot of times you almost lose the difference there. Sometimes he's talking about within, and then the other... You you see where, I guess... Yeah, I I suspect he's thinking here of the evil men not being fellow Christians, but, but being... But could, but could be religious people or the Jews or whatever. Yeah, I mean, because you'd have two different types. Right. You see what I'm saying? The religious people that are teaching false things, yet they're trying to teach, you know, trying to pretend to be following Christ. But Yeah, I, I suspect these probably aren't the ones pretending to be following And then Christ. there would be those that are outside that are just opposed to religion or, you know, that type of thing. So Right. Yeah, I mean... You know, it was the Jews that stirred up the persecution when Paul was in Thessalonica. But they got the mob from the marketplace to do their dirty work. You know, so uh, who knows where all the persecution's coming from. But I, I, I suspect he's not so much thinking about Christians that are just seducing them or teaching false doctrines here. Yet I would point back to some other things earlier indicating... You know, where he mentioned, even if you got a letter or sure. a spirit, you know, those that would appear to be so the other side of that. Those things. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. Okay. <clears throat> All right, 6 to 15. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we may not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that among some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to the work to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And you, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Well, he said in 4 that he has confidence in the Lord that they are doing and will continue to do what he commands. Now in verse 6, now we command you. Here's one of the things that he has confidence that they will do. And his command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, so this is not just a personal desire on his part. Uh, this is what Jesus wants. The command is to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So this is this is command, not just advice. And this is to turn away, to keep away from these undisciplined, unfaithful brethren who aren't following the truth that had been handed down. Remember how he said in 2.15, to stand firm and hold fast to the traditions which you were taught uh, by word of mouth or letter from us. But here are some who are not leading lives according to what Paul has taught them. And what we're going to see is there's a specific situation that he has in mind, a specific kind of situation. Because in verse 7, he goes into his life. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So he's presenting himself as a model to be imitated which is a challenge. Who would, who among us would choose, would want to do that? We'd almost say, well, do what I say, not what I do. Paul did not do that. What he did, uh, what, uh, was what he, uh, what he, what he was teaching. He lived it. So his life was not undisciplined. Specifically, verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So what Paul did was to moonlight in making tents, working with leather. So they created no financial burden to them. And so that he, you know, was an example for them. He showed them the idea of working to provide for themselves. He says in verse 9, not because we did not do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So he's saying that he would uh, he have the right to receive support for his preaching. But he didn't choose to receive that so that he could be an example of somebody who worked hard to provide for himself. Do you wonder if early on, when Paul got to Thessalonica, he perceived that not working was going to be a challenge for some of these brethren, and he wanted to make sure that his life reflected the work ethic that he wanted them to have. It's interesting that even the lifestyle 
a messenger of the gospel like Paul teaches. It teaches what they ought to do and what they ought to be. Our lifestyle ought to also. We ought to live in such a way that when people see how we live, see what we do, how we act, they could follow that. That they, they want to model themselves after our behavior. Um, so he said, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. The church should not be subsidizing people who don't support themselves. You know, if, if somebody's unwilling to work, they ought not to have a meat ticket. I am guessing that what was happening in Corinth, and we'll see some confirmation of this in a minute, is that people were freeloading and taking advantage of the generosity of brethren. You know those first century Christians in general were remarkably generous. You think you can see that particularly in the uh, early Jerusalem church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, but also in other contributions in Acts 11 and uh, and in you know the one big contribution Paul was taking up for the poor saints in Jerusalem and so forth. Can't you imagine that it might be more you know desirable to let brethren be generous with you than to have to work for your uh, daily bread? You know, if, if they'll be hospitable and have you over and feed you, if they'll give you some money to provide for your needs, uh, you don't really have to get a job. <laughs> well, but that's not what God intends. You know, if if they are abusing the hospitality and generosity of the brethren, the brethren ought to quit feeding them. You know, put a stop to that. God wants us to have a work ethic. He wants us to be diligent and to work hard. Um, and, and you know what happens. When we don't work ourselves, we involve ourselves excessively in other people's work. <laughs> so he says in verse 11, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You know, so they got plenty of time to mind everybody else's business while they're not doing any of their own. You know, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I mean, how, mu- how many times when we're not productive, when we're not active, are we more vulnerable to temptations of various kinds, including using our free time to meddle into other people's affairs? If we were busy doing something productive, we wouldn't have time for that. So he says, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread, not to other people's. Eat your own bread. You know, you work. You provide for yourself. That that's that's his teaching. That's what he wants done. They need to they need to get a job. They need to go out and make a job or do whatever. But his his intention is people who can work should work. And they ought not to, to rely on somebody else to provide for them. Now, verse thirteen is intriguing in this connection, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. I think that's a clue as to why these brethren weren't working. Is that brethren were doing good and providing for them. And Paul is saying, despite this abuse, he doesn't want the brethren to quit being generous and benevolent. Just not with the people who refuse to work. But they still need to be generous with those who, who need it. Uh, you know, if you can take an advantage of you know, by some parasite who's living off of you when he could do differently, it kind of sours you to the whole idea of ever helping anybody. <laughs> you know, and, and that's not the right spirit to have. It's tempting. 
but but the right thing to do is to continue being generous. Just limit your generosity to people who are not uh, loafing. You know, exploiting the system would tempt them to stop sharing, but Paul doesn't want that to be done. Don't overreact. There are still people who have genuine needs. You know, there are people who can't work, for example. Uh, or, or people who have needs, even though perhaps they are working and doing everything they can. Or, you know, there's all kinds of situations that occur. There's natural disasters, and there's health issues, and there's so forth and so on. So there'll be people in situations where they did need help. Help them, but don't help these people who could help themselves and who ought to, and and Paul's commanded and shown them that that's what they ought to do. So he he clearly had taught them repeatedly. Verse ten: When we were with you, we ought, we used to give this this order. So when he was there, he taught them frequently about the need to work. And his example, his wife showed it. And then, if you remember in First Thessalonians five fourteen, he said, "We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly." So he's told them again: Get after these people who are lazy. And here in this book, he's taken a sizable chunk of this little letter on this subject, ordering them again to work. If after all of this, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, I mean, these are people who are pretty obstinate Repeated exhortations that Paul was there, Paul's life when he was there, admonition that Paul ordered people to give to them in First Thessalonians, and now Paul's lengthy exhortation here. If they continue to refuse, then the thing to do would be to publicly, you know, take special note of them, show, declare them unfaithful to the Lord, and do not associate with them in your personal life, in your day-to-day activity, don't treat them as a friend in the sense of, you know, socializing and just doing stuff, having fun together and things like that. Now, that does not mean that you regard him as an enemy. You don't treat him rudely. You don't hate him. You're admonishing him as a brother. You are continuing to care about him and try to admonish and encourage him to turn back to the Lord and do right. So this is not something where you, you hate him or have malice, you're trying to show the seriousness of what he's done. Um, so, I mean, that shows you that Paul is taking this seriously. You know, this is not just an optional extra one, and you really probably ought to get a job, you know. No, they, they must. Now, I, I do believe that this pattern would be a similar pattern to any other kind of sin. Not just that being lazy is the worst sin in the world. It's the sin they're committing here. And the, the, the way in which they're not obeying Paul's instructions. If they, if there was any other clear instruction of the Lord that after repeated admonitions they refused to follow, I think Paul would suggest the same sort of, uh, uh, procedure on the part of the brethren. Thoughts and comments on all that. Maybe this idea of being put to shame, that's, that's, I think, a little unusual in the New Testament. You know, there's many other places where it's not to shame them, but to, you know, to build them up. But here's one, it's like, all right, we get to a point, and now doing this publicly or, or for that purpose. Yeah, I mean, because they've got to see the seriousness of their error, and if they are embarrassed by 
this, given the treatment they received from brethren, maybe it'll wake them up and they'll miss what they had. The goal is that they repent. Uh, I believe this is a very strong parallel to 1 Corinthians 5. I don't know if this ever happens before, but in Brazil, quite a few years ago, there were a couple of guys in a church. I was at one of their houses, and the other guy came. They wanted to discuss with me. They had discussed ahead of time. They were, they were on opposite sides of this question, and they were going to talk to me about it. And both of them thought that I would side with the guy in whose house I was. The debate was over this. There was a man, I forget what he had done, but the church was marking and withdrawing from him. That was a little, you know, that was a little complicated, too. Uh, I don't know that it was a unanimous desire. The church was kind of a one-man operation in that. But at any rate, one of the men had... You know, the man had just walked away right then. And the man went to talk to him. And 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 the other man had restrained him and said, no, we've marked him, you're not to talk to him. And so that was their discussion. And this man had later, this man said, you know, he had gone to his house and talked to him, pleaded with him. He knew that was probably wrong, but he wanted him to come back. And so, and the other guy, the one whose house I was in, was like, no, you can't do that. When, you, when you've withdrawn from him, you can't talk to him anymore. And they both thought I was going to side with him. I'm like, no, this says, treat him as a brother and admonish him. Well, they thought this was a preliminary thing, that this wasn't the main thing. This was some earlier step, and that 1 Corinthians 5 is when they get so bad that you cut him off and you don't even talk to him again. And so, really, I think the one brother had done the right thing. He thought it was wrong. He had been convinced that he shouldn't do that, but he cared so much about him, he had to go and try to reach him, which was exactly the right thing to do. I actually think that brother ended up coming back eventually. Uh, but, but you know, it's amazing how you can miss things. So, there's a similar language that's not associating as the very same verb that's used in First Corinthians 5, and it's only used in these two passages. I think these are complementary passages. And in neither case do we cut someone off in the sense that we wouldn't try to get them back. We wouldn't admonish them, even that we wouldn't be civil and speak to them, but that we wouldn't act as if everything was okay and just enjoy their company. And I think that's the idea. Other comments? 16 to 18? And may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Okay, so may the Lord of peace continually grant you peace. The Lord be with you all. He's asking for drawing their attention to the Lord again so much. And that, that's who they need. They need the Lord. They need him in all circumstances. Uh, they need the Lord's presence with them. And then, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Um, you know, this way of writing conclusions uh, was, was way, Paul's way of authenticating. This is a genuine correspondence. You know, if, if it doesn't have my signature, don't receive it. You know, this is, doesn't have my authority. And because this is what I do in every letter, you know, and so 
hang on to the signature. Um, and then he's, he prays for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them all. Uh, so you've got the grace of Jesus at the beginning and the end of every letter Paul writes. And, uh, you know, because our whole lives are encircled by the grace of God. And we so much depend on that. So, questions and comments on the end of Second Thessalonians. All right, we'll stop and take a break there. Then.